Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Giza, general partner at Orxo Female Catalyst Fund and board member at the German Startups Association. Orgso is a venture capital firm co-investing into startups with at least one female founder in Europe. Besides that, Giza founded the Evangelistas, a network of female business angels with more than 170 members in Germany. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Reza, welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to have you here. How is everything today? I am thrilled to be here today, you guys. I'm a big fan of yours and I'm so happy to be able to sit here today with you virtually. Thank you for having me. It's definitely our pleasure and thank you for saying that. You're far too kind, but we'll take it. I always like to start the episodes with the same question. And in this case, that question is, tell us, how did Oxo Female Catalyst Fund come to be? Share with us the origin story. Tell us everything. Ah, it's a long story, so I hope you have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five hours of episode coming for, <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I started angel investing three years ago with two lovely women and Fabiola and Tina. And I mean, our focus was impact-driven founders and business models that had a sustainable growth. So we started investing and after 14 investments, we looked back and we saw several learnings. First of all, and that was actually the most important learning for us, was that 70, so 70% of all the teams that we invested into had at least one female founder, which is very counterintuitive if you look at the uh, numbers. So there's only around about 15 to 20% female founders in Europe. So that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so we used our similarity bias and that's basically what's happening in the industry. That was like our one of our biggest learnings that the similarity bias exists and we have it ourselves as well and that it's not something that you intentionally do uh, to be mean or something, but it just happens. So that was uh, biggest learning number one. And the second learning that we had was that we were really, really, really good at building a bridge between especially the female founders, but also male founders who were untypical for the industry and the venture capital world. So what we were good at was basically translating between these two um, different parties. And then we thought, well, this is a huge opportunity. And uh, not only that, but we're really, all of us have diversity at the core of our heart. Uh, we think that, we don't only think that, but there's many studies that show that diverse teams are more successful and that diversity really helps uh, with regards to everything. So um, building products and services for all the people out there and really get generating all the value add that you could generate uh, versus leaving one part of the economy out of the picture. So 
Then uh, Tina and I, our third partner, Fabiola, she couldn't join us with the fund because she had her fourth child within seven years. So Tina and I went forward and we said, look, why don't we build a fund? And our vision was, we believe that women should be fully empowered in business. And since we are the ones that are in the venture capital space, we thought driving equitable representation of women as founders on the one side, but also as investors would be a good starting point and a good mission for us. So we decided to set up the CIDU fund and we wanted to really make a change. So build like a female layer on top of venture capital. And to be able to do that, we needed to be co-investors so that we would bring one side together with the other side. So it was really important for us to have a small fund so that we don't have to take large ownerships and that we can get the good lead investors on board. And we made it an all-female focus. So we were investing into teams that had at least one female founder and the female founder needed to have at least 20% of the founder shares. Plus, we were looking for our limited partners, our own investors, to be over 50% women in terms of euros and in terms of heads. Yeah, and that's what we did. So we set up the fund and uh, we started co-investing with the top tier VC funds in Europe. So far, it's been going really well. But what can you tell after one year? I mean, it's it's very recent. <laughs> we just had our final closing yesterday. So uh, congrats. Actually, we- have done that yeah <laughs> congrats congrats we should have done the recording earlier so we could launch it at the same time i'm sad now but congrats yeah. either way you, you touched on a lot of cool topics that we will want to deep dive but i'm actually curious about one thing the name is oxo female catalyst fund female yeah. catalyst fund is quite self-explanatory yeah <laughs> what about the rest oxo where does ah, that this is so cool so oxo is actually one of the three daughters of Zeus in old Greek mythology. And the daughters were there to help bring the plants through the seasons. And in those times, it was only three seasons. And also was actually the one helping the plants through the summer to be able to go into the harvest. So uh, we really liked that. And we had sake, the three of us, <laughs> and we drank uh, sake together. And that's how we came up with the name. And then we thought, well, uh, why don't we put a second X to it so that it's a, you know, woman. Uh, so also originally it was written A-U-X-O, but we added a second X to it. And then what we also liked was that there's a third aspect to it as well, which is auxilio, uh, helping. And that's how we see ourselves. So we want to be the gardeners, the helpers, whatever you may call it, the running mates of the founders. That's a cool story. <laughs> I, I did not know that. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy I asked it. It's so cool. <laughs> Again, before we deep dive into all the fun stuff, can you just give us the quick kind of rundown of your thesis and strategy? So what are you investing on stages, yeah. verticals, geos, just so we have it kind of super structured in the beginning? But maybe a step before that, so um, female founders, again, I would like to go into that because in Germany, there's 97% uh, male GPs in the funds. So obviously, that's why less than 10% of funding goes to female founders. And But if you look at the statistics, they show that female founders really generate high returns. And then we thought that the lack of female fund managers uh, would actually have a unique or display a unique opportunity for us to get into the most contested deals. So that's why our focus is agnostic, sector agnostic. Since we're uh, co-investors, we can do that and we can just the co-investment part of it enables us to execute a significant number of high quality deals across many sectors creating a powerful network of these female founders and investors for a mutual lift. And we do it in Europe. We take 3 to 5% ownership at the time that we invest. 
and the ticket sizes are somewhere between 100 and 600,000 typically in the first ticket. I have to ask one kind of provocative question. Often we hear Europe and then we drill down and it's like 80% pick a big capital and then tiny things here and there. So when, yeah. when you say Europe, can you deep dive a bit? So where is that? Where are you guys investing? Yeah, so we're in Germany. So most of our deals are actually in Germany. and But we do have several deals in the UK, um, several in France and one in Sweden so far. But we are looking across Europe and trying to cover as much of Europe as possible. You know, when that many of your deals are German, why do you focus on all of Europe or rather, you know, you describe yourselves as pan-European or European fund. Why not say we're German fund and then sometimes opportunistically we do something outside? What's the deliberation there, Giza? From the 19 deals we've done so far, 13 are in Germany. So a substantial part is still in other countries as well. Why we did this is uh, there's actually one main reason. And this main reason being there's just not that many female founders out there. And if we want to make the best investments, then we have to make the top of the funnel as full as possible. And geography basically is one of the main things to be able to do that. And that's why we uh, decided to open it up to have enough deal flow to be able to uh, look for the best investments at the end. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I was just curious to understand, but that's cool. There is one thing I would love to dive into, Gesa, and that is the point of you having the criteria that 50% of your LP base had to be women, both in terms of headcount and euros. I think that is, uh, for lack of better wording, a very ballsy move. <laughs> it's maybe not the wide <laughs> word to use there. I'd love to understand your thinking there and what you think allowed you to do that. So first of all, it was super tough. <laughs> and we imposed <laughs> this upon us because of uh, you know our vision. We said equitable access for women into venture capital. And that doesn't only mean founders, but that also includes limited partners, basically. So... To be able to walk the talk, we had to do it that way. What was really difficult is that there's just not that many women investing into venture capital. So many of the women that we approached had never even thought about venture capital as an asset class that would be um, relevant for them. We asked everyone, we're like, do you know any women from the economy? Do you know people who are on the boards of publicly listed companies? Do you know any high-risks of big, uh, you know, Mittelstand families? Or do you know women from private equity? That was like the main, let's say, hunting ground <laughs> that we had. We just wanted to walk the talk and we wanted to make a point that it is possible. And we were talking to many, many, many typical venture capital funds. And the maximum number we heard was that they had four female limited partners. And we said, that's not enough. We just want more to be in there. And we want them not only to invest into us, but to invest into other funds as well. Uh, and then, since you gave that statistic there, I think we need to just double click on the definition because what is a female limited partner? If you're thinking of an institutional investor, so Isomer Capital, they have Catherine as a partner. Would she have to be the lead on the deal for Isomer to count as a, as a female LP? Or... Do you say institutional by definition? That's just a neutral party. It's not neither woman or how do you do it? Well, we don't have that many institutionals. So we are a first time fund and a small fund. Institutionals didn't like us that much, uh, to tell you the truth. So uh, most of our investors are high net worth individuals. 
And there it's pretty easy to figure out if it's a woman or a man. And actually, often it was a couple. And if it was a couple, we would rate them as, as female. If we would have taken the 50%, uh, it would have been even harder than yeah, it was yeah, actually. <laughs> But if it were institutionals, it would have needed to be the decision maker that is the woman that invested into yeah, us. Yeah. So in this case, yeah, it needed to be a woman. Then I would love to ask, Because, you know, Dave and I, of course, in the LP world, we love that. And I, many of our listeners love it because, you know, they're racing from the LP world. I'd love to ask you to reflect a bit on your fund versus, this is my perspective, right? There are quite a few new funds coming up that are female-led and female-focused. And I'd love to hear the feedback that you've gotten from the LP ecosystem and both, you know, stuff that you would wish people stopped saying and also the feedback that you got from other GPs when you say, this is what we're going to do. What did you feel? Did everyone say, yeah, that's awesome case. I go get him. Or did you also feel like I got some pushback that I wish people would stop? Timing is actually the main answer. And why do I say timing? Because the Oxo Female Catalyst Fund, I think, was the first European fund with the co-investment strategy focusing on female founders. There's no other fund that did that at the time when we were fundraising. So what we were actually doing with the fund, uh, I mean, there was one newspaper in Germany that reported about us and they said, Oxo a female catalyst fund. <laughs> and that was pretty cool. So we noticed, okay, so we actually, we defined our own category, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and then we became um, the category leaders and people see us a little bit as like the godmothers of female investing, uh, other VCs and also the female founders. And there's many other, I mean, you touched upon the topic. There's many other funds raising right now and also having raised uh, with female focus. I can name a few because it's interesting for listeners also. So in Austria, it's the female founders fund. Fund. In the UK, we have the sister fund. Then Anthemis has a sub fund, which is actually focusing on female founders. C Ventures, First Look Capital, Pink Salt Ventures. Then in CEE, we have the Better Fund, for example. So there's many funds doing this. But to come back to your question is what do LPs actually say? So I think we had a natural filter. LPs didn't take a call with us if they wouldn't really believe in this being a, a good market opportunity. So we didn't get any stupid questions or pushback. At the beginning, some people asked us like why the female focus and why 20%, why so high? When we answered this question, it, it was pretty obvious to them that, I mean, we, we don't want window dressing. That's the answer to that, right? So basically there were no stupid questions, nothing that I would have wished uh, they wouldn't have asked. And I, I think for us, the timing was the main point. And the second thing, it's in our name, also Female Catalyst Fund, uh, that someone who doesn't want to invest into female founders will never take a call with us. <laughs> so stupid questions are just very improbable. We have a good filter at the beginning. <laughs> Then I'd say that there's probably the question that I hear the most from female focused fund managers that they get from LPs is, well, is there really deal flow enough? Are there enough female founders out there raising? I'd love to hear your take yeah. on that. We set up our affinity on the date of our first closing, which was the 18th of August last year. And uh, we had our final closing yesterday. So I was looking at the numbers yesterday and we have over 2000 deals that we looked at in that time. So uh, yes, there is, <laughs> there is enough deal flow and all of those deals were female yeah. founded. So, I mean, my numbers show that it's just un untrue. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes, you know, LPs like funds that are geographically focused or vertically focused. 
And that makes a lot of sense in my perspective. You know, I want someone who's very well positioned to get all the best deals in that area or that vertical so on. But you are both vertically and geographically agnostic. So what is your comeback on that? Well, we heard that a lot. So there are several fund of funds who actually uh, focus specifically on what you just said, a geographic focus and being agnostic or some kind of focus in, in the sector and then being geographically agnostic. We see the female focus as being something similar to I do B2B or I do B2C or something. Because if you look at that, it's not, I mean, all the B2B companies and all the B2C companies have the same in common as female funded companies have in common. It's just such a big bandwidth of topics and challenges and customer groups and whatever. My reply is, yes, we actually do have a sector, let's call it an asset class. And the asset class uh, that we're specifying on is female founders. But yeah, I mean, I, we heard that actually from several funder funds that they would prefer us to say female founders in this space, health tech or something. But if you, I mean, the deal, I just told you the numbers, if we would bring it down to, let's say, health tech, for example, then we wouldn't have enough deal flow to really get all the best deals. Yeah. I, it's funny because I, I would liken it to the geo focus, right? Because I would say, well, if you're an industry agnostic fund, but with a geo focus, you said, well, it's not about business models. It's not about expertise. It's about everyone knows me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you said that you have across Europe as OXO. Super interesting. Yeah, we're happy because we have a brand right now. And, and we noticed that female founders from across Europe actually know about us and they contact us, which is pretty cool. I guess that's what you mean, probably, right? Yeah. If you're only in Germany and everyone knows you. But I think our branding, because it's such a hype topic and female founders still don't have that many female GPs to speak to, then it's just uh, really easy. And it's an easy criteria. So everyone, you're always top of mind with everyone. It's like, oh, so, okay, they do female stuff. <laughs> yeah. Geza, what I was about to ask was that what I find particularly interesting about your, your strategy is that it's a female-focused co-invest strategy. And we've talked a lot about the female-focused. But I'd like to talk a bit about the co-invest because from my perspective... That is a very unique take on providing differentiated access that is really hard to get for LPs. Yeah. And I think it's a beautiful way because there's a lot of naysayers to female-focused strategies, right? But it's a beautiful way to come back to them and, and kind of just say, well, you're looking at one part of it. You're not looking at the other part of it, right? And the co-invest part is so important. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk a bit about the co-invest strategy not only how LPs perceive it and how you pitched it to LPs as well, of course, but how do you make it work? How do you ensure that level of access yourself? Actually, uh, one of the main parts, not only for LPs, but uh, for funds that we cooperate with is actually this. So they have an access problem often. And what we see is that many investors are under increased pressure, public pressure, actually, of becoming more diverse. So on the one hand, what is meant by that is uh, obviously the own teams, but on the other hand, it's also the investments and the deal flow that they do. So they really like that part and they see, I mean, we always try to be like the first people seeing a deal on the ground and bringing it to other investors. Obviously, I would say it's only half of the time that this is the case. The other half of the time is the other way around. 
But for us, those deals are really great because what we do is we find a gem and often enough, we help this gem uh, to tweak a little bit and, and become more VCable, I would call it, with how the pitching goes and so on. And then we uh, distribute it across our investors. And this co-investment strategy, as you said, so many LPs say they just want access and they want to be as broad as possible in their access. And that's why they really like the fact that we have that many uh, co-investors. And we've been successful with this. So maybe I t two U.S. funds who have uh, one invested after us, the Sequoia, which is pretty cool. So many of our female LPs uh, who invested for the first time in a venture capital fund now are really happy that they have a co-investment with Sequoia <laughs> or Fin Capital, for example, which we invested together with in one company. What we are seeing is that this co-investment strategy is actually, they're happy to have us make it. Plus, it really ensures that we're aligned with our LPs because since we're a small fund, we will only be incentivized by the carry. I mean, the management fee is not huge with a small fund. So basically, uh, the more we work and the better we are in networking and getting into other funds and having good co-investors, the better outcome for our LPs. And how do we ensure the second part of the question that we get it? It's basically as everyone else. So we pitch ourselves and we just noticed that there is one area where our sweet spot is. And that's uh, when there's one lead investor being looked for or, or they have it already and us bringing the deal to the lead investor, that's our sweet spot in like pre-seed and seed phases. And the part where it's most difficult for us to get in is actually if there is a co-lead situation and these are coming a lot more often, then there's just not enough ownership for us to take. And we really need our three to 5% ownership to be able to uh, have a fund returner and to have the statistics of our fund work. How do you think about it? Because the portfolio makes, how many investments are you planning to do in total out of the 20 million? Yeah, 30. And uh, so far we have 19. Yeah. And so round about 30 plus or plus minus. And, and how much do you keep in the bank for follow up? Less than a typical fund. Yeah. So a typical fund does one third, two thirds. And, and we would be uh, more towards 50-50 or even less, 55 and 45. Because what we notice is that as a small co-investor, it's easier to get um, in at the beginning. And then if you have, for example, people like Sequoia coming in, then getting ownership in the later stages is a lot more difficult. So that's why our strategy is basically put in as much as possible, as early as possible. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, if you have great co-investors later on, then it's a lot more difficult to, uh, I mean, keeping your parata or even expanding it. Dibna wrote a cool article the other day where he pointed out what he had said a year ago, which is we come from a period where there was practically no risk in pre-seed seed because you knew you would have a follow-on round. That has changed dramatically, right? Now we're back to how venture used to be and how venture should be, that it is the most risky to be doing deals in, in pre-seed and seed. How do you think about that when you have that deployment strategy? It's a lot more fun when you know that there's going to be a Series A most likely, whereas, you know, risk increasing now. Yeah. So, I mean, when we started fundraising, we started obviously with the past uh, thinking, the thinking being it's easy to get all the follow on investments and so on and so forth. So uh, it was just a completely different market to what we have right now. And yeah, but our strategy was based on the old days. But we still think that um, if you look at the market data, you can see that there's a significant decline in Series D plus and cooling for earlier rounds. 
But still in the first half of year 2022, Europe's VC funding up to Series A uh, increased by over 20%. And for us, it's also, we have to wait until the Q3 data will be there. So that most will probably be the most revelatory about that. And however, you can see that European VCs have record le- levels of dry powder still. And the raised funds, I mean, in what, what did they say? In Q2 of 2022, there were 9.5 billion euros raised by funds versus Q1 uh, one year earlier being 5.9 billion. Yeah. So there is still money out there yeah. and, and it needs to be deployed. Yeah. The strategy has been overhyped there and there's been a very good environment for that type of strategy for some time. But that does not mean that the strategy doesn't work and you should pursue the strategy, right? We're just coming out of an abnormally lucrative period for that type of strategy. And I think that OXO, you know, Dave and I have looked quite closely into OXO and and, and really loved it. And unfortunately, we were too late for the party with the syndicate, but we're very hyped about you guys. So in that sense, (laughs) I'm not pointing out that I think that you're going to be in trouble if the audience thought that it quite the contrary. But I think that there are many others that have, uh, you know, taken down that route that might find it difficult. Yeah. And maybe you have to change then. I mean, we've talked about this internally as well and maybe uh, also discussed and maybe we'll have to take it to our LPIC eventually. I don't know, but we discussed what if we just, instead of having follow-ons, why don't we just uh, distribute it then across more companies and just do the first tickets or so on. But on the at the end of the day, we've seen in the past that doubling down on the really good investments is actually a good strategy. And we, uh, yes, it's more difficult today, but we still think that right now, now we're still in an okay position, especially this early on, uh, and there's still a lot of dry powder. So, um, I mean, even the market is cooling, and we think that it's actually uh, not not a bad thing that it's cooling. It's a necessary correction more than anything else. We still think our strategy will work in this a little bit cooled market. I had another what I might call a difficult question, and this one is this one might hurt more or sting more than the other, which is you've done 19 investments out of the 30. And that means that you've been buying quite a bit at a time where things were expensive. Yeah. What what is your rationale? What have you been telling LPs and all that? LPs haven't asked us about that, but we have been preparing answers for that. (laughs) But that was the market. And (laughs) that was the market. And we still have one third to go. And that one third will be uh, probably a very cheap one third because with the markets being so cool right now and people like... uh, We've heard of term sheets being pulled back, actually. I've heard several cases where this happened. So um, I think valuations are drastically going to go down now, and we will be able to have one third at least uh, at a normal valuation. But everyone else has it as well. You know, it's not only us, except if you just raise your fund and are just starting to invest, then you're maybe in a better position than us. We have a very resilient target group. So if you look at the numbers uh, at female founders, they have less write-offs and uh, the companies are a lot more resilient. So we're hoping for that to kind of adjust. Absolutely. I have another question, which stems from the same sentence that Andreas just used for this question, which is you've done 19 investments. And I'm not going to ask you to talk about fund two, but I will set the stage in case you want to talk about fund two, which is... You're at an interesting stage where you've done final close of of fund one. You've deployed significant amounts of that capital. How do you think about firm development? So how do you think about the next iteration of OXO, meaning 
fun too, to some extent. And also the whole strategy that you just described. And what I'm particularly interested is as you need to kind of go into different profiles of LPs, will you be able to keep your criteria? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so it's actually a good timing for this question because after the final close yesterday, I decided to give it a first go for a deck for potential fund two. So I was thinking exactly about this question. And what I noticed was with fund one, we reached a product market fit. We created a new category. We became category leaders. We have a super strong portfolio also from our angel investments and a well-known brand. And despite the several imitators that we have and traditional funds becoming gradually more diverse, the market opportunity is still super, super strong. So basically having the strategy that we have right now is really good. And we were thinking about what could be like a, a good fund size and the reasoning behind, uh, I'm going to tell you like uh, the first idea that we have is making it 50 million. The reasoning behind that is uh, just to become relevant for the big institutional LPs and governmental LPs. And not too big so that we can still have our co-investment strategy because uh, we don't want to be um, fighting over the percentages in the deals and we still want to be the ones that still ha can have tag along. So what we're actually looking at is maybe slightly higher allocation ownership wise. So sometimes also being able to do a co-lead, which right now is the part where we uh, struggle with often. And then uh, having more capital available for follow-on investments and option to also go into slightly larger rounds and to place also small party, being a little bit more flexible, basically. And what we're looking for is, or what we're thinking about is, we need a little bigger team to be able to do that. Right now, it's Tina and myself, so the GPs, and we have one working student. She will become our first proper employee on the 15th of September. We're super, super, super stoked because she's amazing. Her name is Carla. And then we have a, a great intern, Hannah. But we will definitely need uh, one or two more investment professionals. We will need fund operations and finance manager and assistant. And we see that right now is... Obviously not a good market to start fundraising, but on the other hand, what we are doing, especially for the governmental LPs, might be super interesting. And also for companies that want to put diversity at the forefront of their brand, that it might still be a good time. So uh, we think that uh, the EIF may be, I, I mean, potentially uh, will consider looking at us uh, with that type of size. But this is all like first ideas and not really anything that, that I can discuss further because it's not in the final making yet. But it's I, I actually really like that you uh, allowed us to hear that thinking because I think it's really interesting also for many of our listeners who are more in the early stages of their fund launching careers or either raising fund one or thinking about raising fund one because it is very insightful how fund size affects strategy and how that then affects the lp strategy right the lp outreach strategy so i love that you brought that up actually yeah and and, and it's actually really interesting because our uh, lp so far as i said we have many lps we have uh, over 90 90 lps these lps often will not be able to do second investments because it's just like the first time that they invested into venture capital in Germany. We have a threshold of 200,000 euros as wow. being uh, the minimum that you, if you're a semi-professional investor, to be able to invest into venture capital. So basically, uh, there's many of the current LPs who will probably not become LPs in fund two. So our 
target group will be a completely different one and we will target more institutional investors. But I, I think also the governmental ones, especially with what we are doing right now, and we're really changing things in the community and in the industry, I think that might be a good place to start and big corporates that, or maybe also another idea that we had was all the like huge funds from the US and I'm, I'm speaking like about, you know, KKR and so on. They have the problem of diversity and they have the public pressure and maybe that might be also a good starting point for yeah. us. Yeah, for sure. Can't help but bring in here, uh, you know, uh, what we're doing with our syndicates because, you know, the threshold of 200K is quite aggressive in, in Germany, but in Europe wide, it's 100K. I'd love to hear how you think about, you know, as I said earlier, right, we talked about whether we should come into your fund to sell piece as well. And, and I'd love to just hear your thinking around these syndicate structures that are coming up from people. Some managers do them themselves. And, and others do them with yeah. partners, others do them with service providers. I'd love to hear your thinking. I think they're great. I mean, first of all, access into venture capital to democratize that. I think that's, uh, for me, the main reason why I think this is great, because there are so many people who just won't ever have access. And that's what I'm all about, diversifying the whole industry. Uh, so also bringing and not only in terms of gender, but in terms of everything else, also people into the industry that typically would not be in it. And the second thing is, it's the best of both worlds because you still have one contact person. So it's like a pooling for a typical um, startup that has a, a pool leader. And But you can still use the know-how and the networks and so on of all the other participants of the pool. So I think uh, we actually have uh, two or three groups investing in us as LPs. And that was really strong because those groups, actually single people in those groups offered to help us with, uh, some people even brought us deal flow from these groups or uh, specifically offered to help the startup founders with uh, problems. For example, one of them is a lawyer and really helps with all the law stuff. And I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We always say that, you know, impact doesn't always follow ticket size. Uh, and an asset to these groups can be quite interesting. Geza, you know what's coming next. It's the quick fire round. We always end the episodes with it. I'll ask you a couple of quick answer questions and I'm expecting 30 to 60 second answers each. Are you ready? I am. <laughs> First question. Geza, what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? Well, the most... Things excite me that other people are also excited about, but I am still very excited about B2C, which others are completely non-excited in the current uh, market. Why? Many of the really big corporates and the big successes, unicorns, uh, were B2C plays in Germany, especially. Also, if you see Zalando, Flixbus, and so on and so forth, that built the German ecosystem. Yeah, they come from B2C. Why would that end? <laughs> I love that. Second question, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising? Network yourself through everything that you can, because it's all a numbers game. You get 100 no's uh, for one yes, so go network. <laughs> Third and final question, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in venture? Ah, I think I always thought from the beginning it's all elbows because people are getting into deals and, and pushing and so on. But I think the most counterintuitive thing that I figured out is uh, if you are really collaborative and have uh, a mindset of having a lot out there, then it works even better. 
Abundance is the word. We couldn't agree more here. I think that's a bit about the magic of what's coming up next for VC in Europe. I think we have a much more collaborative culture now than we had just a few years back. So amazing times ahead. Geisa, thanks so much. Thank you for uh, announcing Fund 2 on the European VC podcast. <laughs> well, it's not announced yet. It's just like the first. <laughs> I'm not allowed to. In Germany, the Bafin is really strict, so we can't we can't do any marketing. Uh, it's, I just said I, I started that day. <laughs> I am kidding. I'm throwing you out in, uh, in the future. Thanks so much, Gaze. It was awesome having you here. Looking forward to meeting you in Berlin or wherever. I'm sure we'll have some fun times. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. It was lots of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.